0: For the last 58 years, our Father, this church has met for one service, one body, and today in the mystery of your providence, we begin a new era, meeting as two services, one body. And so we praise you, O Father. And you are building your church in ways that we never expected. And we bless your name. I pray, Father, that you would forget, you would help us to not forget any of your benefits as we read this morning in Psalm 103. Remember how you have forgiven our sins. You have healed our diseases, how you have crowned us with love and compassion. And you have made us your own. Father, I pray that we would marvel at that afresh and anew this morning, and that we would marvel at your work of building your church today. And These things, Father, we pray for your great glory and for our own great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone once said, there's there's one thing you can always count on. Things are going to change, and that's always been the case in a to a large extent, that's always been true. Life is full of changes. We don't know what's going to happen next. And frankly, for some, this conjures up within them a, a spirit of excitement and adventure. They love change. And for other people, it brings up feelings of deep anxiety and fear. They, they're terrified of change. They don't like change. Change makes them nervous and fearful. God has seen fit to share some of his attributes with us, but omniscience is not one of them. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what the next change will be. We don't know what's going to take place in the next minute, let alone the the rest of this day or the next week or month or year. We have a reasonable idea of what to expect, but change always catches us off guard. As human beings, we are shackled to time. We have to live in time, second by second, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. We are stuck in what philosophers call uh, linear time. It's, It's something that comes to us This way, it comes to us one moment at a time, and we can't ever break out of that. God lives outside of time, but he has confined us to live in time. And because we live in time, the things that are yet to happen, we don't know about. And so when they come, it's a surprise. It's either a joyful surprise or it's an unjoyful surprise, maybe a tragic surprise. We just never know. The next phone call may bring news of joy. The next envelope we tear open may be news of tragedy. Or we never know. We just never know. And that's the way it's always been. And frankly, how it will always be. And so we shouldn't be terribly surprised when change happens. Not in our personal lives and not in the church either. As Christians, we of all people should and be able to stand with confidence, because we know the promise of God's word. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so when faced with unexpected change... The believer rests in the sovereignty of God because we understand that he rules every event in our lives with infinite power and infinite wisdom and infinite love. Do you believe that? That's the rock of our hope. I mean, when the storm winds blow and change comes in in a negative way, um, that's the ballast in our ship. That's what keeps us upright, knowing that this is not a mistake, that there is no such thing as a maverick molecule in all of the universe. God controls it all. It's what makes God, God. Now, what I want us to see this morning is that what's true of believers is also true of the church. The question is not, will we ever face change? That's a given. The question really is, How do we respond when change happens? Will we react in discontent and fear and unbelief or worry or pride? Or will we respond faithfully according to God's word? It's not a matter of will things change? They will. It's only a matter of how we respond to it. Now, the reason I want to address this issue this morning is because Calvary Bible Church is experiencing, as you know, some pretty significant changes. And to be perfectly honest... I never thought our little church would ever face the need to have two two worship services. It's always seemed to me that we were theologically far too narrow for any more than maybe a hundred or a couple of hundred of people to want to be a part of this church. We're not trendy. We're not cool. We're not especially innovative. We don't even have a coffee bar. And yet here we are. Here we are. How did we get here? As I've said many times, the elders of Calvary Bible Church have never strategized for numeric growth. Uh, it's never been on the radar. We've never had meetings about it. We've never read books about it. Uh, I can honestly say, in my 15 years here, we've never read a book on church growth. That's not our business. We're not interested in whatever the latest evangelical fad or trend may be. Whatever the newest program or the newest video circulating through the churches. that's not what God has called us to do. And frankly, we thought that would keep us small. And we were wrong. And now we're faced with change. And frankly, as your pastors, one of your pastors, I'm concerned this morning that none of us would give in to the temptation of worry or fret, or fear. And none of us would take advantage of this and see it as an opportunity to promote self or to glory in what we perceive we have done or to fret about things that that might not be as good as they used to be back in the good old days when we could all meet together in one room. Rather, I want us to see that as long as the church has been in existence, the providential purposes of God have always brought about significant and unexpected changes to the church. And in every case, God simply called its leaders and its people to respond in faithfulness to God's word, in obedience, joyful obedience to God's word, rather than fear rather than pride rather than anything else that would dishonor the lord and bring harm to his church and so to help us see that i want us to i want us to go all the way back in church history all the way back to the conception of the local church and then we'll move forward from there for a little while this morning and from here i hope to draw out just a couple of basic principles for how god wants us to respond or how he wants us to think about the changes that he brings about in this church, in Calvary Bible Church. And so turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is where we find the conception of the church. Matthew 16, and we're going to pick it up in verse 13 just to give us some context, but there's one or two key statements here in verse 18 that I want to focus on. Now, Verse 13, Matthew 16, 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and other Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, listen, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there's a lot here. We looked at this passage um, a couple of weeks ago, and we were dealing with the whole issue of church discipline. And trying to understand in Matthew 18 what he was talking about in, in the next verse here that we haven't read. And there's a number of things. This is really an essential scripture to understand. But there's only one thing I want to draw out of it today. I want us to focus on the one phrase. And here it is. I will build my church. I will build my church. This beloved Is an emphatic declaration of intent by the sovereign Lord of the universe. And it's interesting to me. He refers to himself in verse 13 as the Son of Man. And we don't have time to look at this, but back in Daniel chapter 7, we find the origin of that term. And in Daniel 7, we find the Ancient of Days being approached by the Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, gives to the Son of Man all the peoples of the earth that he would rule over them, and they would worship him forever. And Jesus is referring to himself here as that Son of Man. It's his favorite phrase, favorite name for himself. And so Jesus is saying, the Son of Man that's me, is the one who is going to build his church. I will build my church. He didn't say, well, it would be a really nice thing someday if we had a church, or I'd really like the idea of maybe starting something new here to compete with (laughs) Judaism. Let's talk about, uh, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Let's call it church. Um, What do you think about planning a church? Let's give that a try. No, no. Even from before the creation of the world, God had this planned. And now he had come. And now it was time for it to be conceived. And Jesus then does so by telling his disciples, specifically Peter, I will build my church. And then think about this. If God Almighty seeks seeks to build something... Is there anything in the universe that can thwart his plan? No. Nothing can keep Jesus from finishing what he has set out to do. No kingdom, no government, no murderous dictator, no disease, no natural disaster, not even Satan himself can interfere with or slow down the progress that Jesus intends to make in building his church. Nothing, no, nothing can keep him from building his church and doing it his way, and so let's look at the next statement here because it emphasizes that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, from time to time, you hear people refer to Hades here as uh, as hell, and uh, and I don't think that's that's terribly inappropriate, but I think there's there's a, a, a really a narrower. Understanding of the word Hades. Hades is simply the ancient word for the place of the dead. You say, well, isn't that hell? Well, not really. Not in the mind of the Old Testament saint when he was speaking about the grave. We think of the grave. We have conversations about people dying and being put in a casket and being put in the grave. And there they stay. In a very real sense, they stay there. Now, where's their soul? Well, that's a different issue. Absent from the body and present with the Lord, yes. But the grave is the place of the dead. It's the thing that all people fear. We saw last week in Hebrews where uh, God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, talks about men describing them as people who, through fear of death, are held captive to slavery all their lives. People are scared to death of death. (laughs) And Hades is the place of the dead. It sounds as if what, uh, what might be being said here is that Satan's attack on the church is not strong enough to subdue Jesus' progress. And, and there's a sense in which that's true. But really, I think more precisely what Jesus is saying is that not even death itself, not even death can subdue what Jesus set out to do. And that in two senses. Kill me, and I will still build my church. Secondly, Satan, you kill as many of my people as you want. It'll never, ever thwart my purposes to build my church. Not even death. Not my death. Not the death of any of my people. Not the death of Many, many of our people, not even genocide, is going to keep me from building my church. The gates of hell cannot stand against it. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, here's how it works. One of my people dies. Death seems to have gripped them. And yet I, by the power of the resurrection, smash the gates of death and take my people captive back to their home with the Father. That's what he's saying. And this is an amazingly encouraging truth. When all is said and done, this is the bedrock of every faithful pastor. It's the bedrock confidence of every man who seeks to be faithful as a pastor in God's church. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will will build my church. I will build my church. And so the ultimate responsibility for the success of God's plan rides squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, not me, not the elders. Whether it grows or whether it shrinks, whether it it, uh, encounters prosperity and acceptance in the community or whether it's attacked and destroyed by the ruling powers in the community. We have no control over that. That's not our business, and when we get in there and start trying to manipulate it through unbiblical tactics, we get in trouble. Not that it would interfere with Christ building his church, but because it's unfaithfulness on our part as pastors. We're not called to make the church grow. We're called to obey the Lord no matter what the circumstances he sovereignly allows in this life for his people. And if we're preaching the word of God and doing our best to bring about uh, truth, bring truth to bear from the word of God on the souls of men, then we don't have to worry about the apparent success or the apparent failure of the local church in any kind of particular setting because we know I'm being faithful to proclaim the word word of truth whether people like it or not. Jesus is going to build his church. I mean, think about the Old Testament. Think about Isaiah. He got called into the ministry, and the Lord said, here's what you're to do. Preach to people whose ears will not hear and whose hearts will not receive the word that I am giving you to proclaim. And he says, how long, O Lord? I mean, how long do you want me to do that? That seems fruitless. And he said the same thing to Ezekiel. You proclaim my truth, and nobody's going to listen to you. Really? I mean... That doesn't sound like a plan for church growth. Frankly, because of this, because of our understanding of Jesus building his church, I mean, this view really impacts a lot of what we do around here. Every few years, someone comes out with a a book that says, if we don't reinvent how the church is, uh, how we're doing church, how we're leading church, how church is going on, in this century, then uh, it's going to be extinct in 20 years, uh, and that's that's a great idea if you're trying to sell books. But if you believe Jesus's promise, <laughs> "I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it," then that's nonsense. That is utter nonsense that is trying to move the hearts of pastors with an unbiblical agenda to get them to do something God never intended for pastors and churches to do. It's totally man-centered rather than God-centered. And frankly, I know that the new thing in churches today is to have what's called a growth pastor. And frankly, I don't think there should be such a position in any biblical church. And here's why. That position is already filled Jesus is the growth pastor. He's the one in charge of whether or not the church grows, or whether it shrinks, or whether the people prosper, or whether they're killed. And pastors are simply the joyful slaves of the Lord of the church. Our job is simply to proclaim the word of God and minister it at every opportunity, but his job is to empower that word for the advancement of the church according to God's sovereign plan. And so we can rest, we can rest knowing that the progress of the church is under Christ's control. It's under Christ's control. He's building his church. And so that's number one. And principle number two is this. Christ's plan for the church, his plans for the church are often different than ours. Christ's plans for the church are often Quite different than ours. As Lord of the church, Jesus has the right to do whatever he wants without any consultation from me or from the elders of this church. Uh, We are not the lords of Calvary Bible Church. We are the slaves of Calvary Bible Church. Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants to do what he wants to do. He intends to do from before the foundation of the world what he intends to do. And he's not going to consult us about it. So let's look at a great example of this in Acts chapter 2. So we've seen now the conception of the church. Let's look at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there we go. There's Acts. Actually, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 first, but Acts 2 is crucial here. Acts 2, Jesus has already been crucified, risen again. He hung around for 40 days making appearances now and again so that there could be no doubt that he'd risen from the dead. He also had instructions for uh, the disciples about how they were to proceed, what they were to do, what they were to refrain from doing. Uh, And so for 40 days, he appeared here and there almost always on Sunday, almost always on the first day of the week he made his appearances. And I wish I had time to unpack that. It's not just the resurrection it's not the only reason why we meet on Sunday, but the fact that Jesus appeared again and again and again, and every time it was on Sunday, even Pentecost happened on the first day of the week. That's a different sermon, and I'm getting off track. And so, before ascending into heaven, he told his disciples, he gave them this instruction stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the othermost parts of the earth. That's the plan. The church is going to spread to the remotest part of the earth. In Acts 2, we have a record of what happened when the Holy Spirit showed up. But let's begin by making an observation from chapter 1. Look with me at, at Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem, this is the apostles, from the Mount of Olives, which was near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey away. It was very close. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not the Judas who betrayed the Lord. This is a different Judas. Verse 14, they, uh, then with one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, capital S, that's Jesus, um, capital H, Jesus' brothers were there as well. At this time, Peter stood up in (laughs) the midst of the brethren, which Peter always seemed to be the first one to do, to say something. Uh, You know, my my son came home from college this week, and he was talking about sticking his foot in his mouth, and he said, you remember, you know, I did what Peter did. Peter, not knowing what to say, said, you know, just just don't do that. Uh, So Peter gets up to speak, and look at the parenthetical statement that Luke puts in, in verse 15, a gathering of about 120 persons were together. Now, let's observe carefully here. Acts chapter 1, the church, all of it. This is everybody. This is the whole universal church at this time. Everyone who was in the church consisted of how many people? 120. And you know what's really interesting about that? I want you to take, uh, especially you people who don't, even recognize that there are people sitting behind you. I want you to turn around and, and look. I want you to see how many people are here. Now we don't normally ask uh, ask people. Yeah, you people in the back row are looking like there's nobody back there. Um, <laughs> we don't normally count. Again, we think that's that's the Lord's business, unless it's strategic, unless we just feel like we got to know because we're running out of room or uh, uh, we're planning something, some event. So we don't normally count. But this morning, I asked. If the guys would count before I get up here to preach, how many people are here? And you know how many people are in this room right now? Uh, Last count was 129. Now, assuming nine of you uh, needed to hear this message again, uh, we're at about, this is 100, about 120 people. So I mean, look around. This is how many people were crammed into that upper room. Let's just take everybody down the hall and get into fellowship hall and have some really close fellowship, and we'll get an idea of how many people and what it was like to be a part of the church, the church, the only one that existed. There was only one, and they were 120 people strong, or weak, as the case may be. Now, most of us would probably agree that 120 people is a fairly manageable number. I mean, a church with 120 people can be pretty comfortable you got 120 people in your church. We know what it's like. Everybody knows everyone else's name. Everyone knows everyone else's business. I mean, we love to be together. When one person is sick, we all move in to help. When one person rejoices, we all rejoice. When someone grieves, we all grieve. It's like a warm and wonderful extended family, and that's good. We like that, and you have liked that. Those of you who have been around for a while, for a lot of years. Because for a lot of years, that's exactly what Calvary was. It's exactly what our church was like. We've always referred to Calvary uh, as uh, uh, the Calvary family. Because that's what we have enjoyed since we've been together. It's always been a pretty fairly small church. And many of our children were born in this church. Some of our children will marry in this church. Having 120 people makes for some really sweet fellowship and some really long-term and deep relationships. It's wonderful. It also makes pastoral ministry fairly simple. A full-time pastor and a couple of elders can pretty much keep up with shepherding everybody. And frankly, when you're living in that kind of church atmosphere, it's difficult to comprehend that anything else could be the will of God. I mean, if this gets disrupted, it's got to be the devil but that's not necessarily the case. It appears to be ideal because it works out for us. It makes us, makes me feel comfortable. But that's no indication that that's God's will. The atmosphere is very comfortable when you're that size. In fact, it's very comfortable in this room right now. I mean, compared to last week, right? We got plenty of room in here. We even got a couple of rows in the back that have been Uh, uh, roped off to give us more room. Some of you got enough room that you can lay down. Just don't, okay? (laughs) This is comfortable. But you know, we get everybody. Everybody in this church and bring them back. I mean, just, just the people who are always here. There were 105 in the early service. Can we put another 105 in this room? That'd be pretty uncomfortable. Now, I don't know if the, the, the 120 in the upper room were thinking like this. I don't know if they were enjoying being small or not. Uh, considering the fact that he talks about uh, continually devoting themselves to prayer, they're probably singing too because that started even from the very beginning. We know that they were certainly enjoying some serious kumbaya time, right? This was good. Good. This was good church experience. I mean the kids loved to go. Mom and dad loved to go, but in the mystery of god 's providence, it was not to last. Look at chapter two, verses one through eight. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them <coughs> excuse me, tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then he lists a whole list of regions and places uh, the Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and et cetera, et cetera, from Mesopotamia and, and from all over the place. These people were hearing the apostles. Proclaim the glory of God in their own language. And it was amazing. And then Peter stands up again in the middle of all of this. It's all going on. And he begins to preach. And he preaches an amazing message. This is his first official sermon that he preaches to uh, what has now happened, this, this new thing called the church. And so he stands up and he preaches. And we don't have time to read the whole sermon his sermons were like mine, long. and uh, But we'll pick up in verse 22, okay? Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you now to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But... God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. That's the message. That's the message. The Messiah has come, and you killed him. I mean, it had only been 40 days since that happened. These people were all a part of it. They were the ones... That in the mystery of God's providence, or as Peter says it here, um, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you put him to death through the hands of godless men. And by the way, all of those words before verse 22, going all the way back to 17, printed in a different typeface, that's all a quotation out of the Old Testament. Peter was simply preaching from the scriptures and explaining the meaning and how it applied to them at that moment. And that's the role of every pastor. Now, normally, when someone like myself preaches, the results are varied. Some people are blessed, some are convicted of sin, some are motivated to do something great, and some just get a nap. But notice what God did to the church as a result of this sermon. Pick up in verse 36. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that's Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this present generation. And and so then... Those who would receive the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, understand, this happened. This all took place on the first day of the week. They had an early morning service, and they had a later service. The really good stuff happened in the later service, and I'm not sure how to interpret that for us. <laughs> And we could say Sunday morning, Sunday school, and then the worship service. In any case, Peter preached in that latter time on that Sunday. In the morning, they had 120 people. By the end of the day, they were 3,120. They talk about unexpected change. Talk about unexpected circumstances. Talk about throwing a wrench in our comfortable situation what effect do you think this had on the church? Shepherding 120 people is relatively easy, but how do you shepherd 3,000? The original church went from having a perfect number of people worshiping in adequate facilities with more than enough pastors to shepherd them, to having an unmanageable number of people with no adequate facilities and not nearly enough leadership to shepherd them all. Now what do you do? It wasn't neat, it wasn't clean anymore, it didn't feel like the paradigm of the model church. All of a sudden, their comfortable little church family, it was faced with unimaginable responsibility. How do we meet for worship? How do we feed everyone? What about child care? What about children's church? What about parking? How do we serve the Lord's Supper to this group? How do we disciple all of these people or baptize them or even pray for them? There's only 12 of us, 11. And beyond all that, we're definitely going to have to do something about the bathroom situation. That's <laughs> been a big deal for us in planning. You know, what if we build? What, what's the big thing that's going to happen around here? And consistently, people have counseled us got to get better bathrooms. Can I get better bathrooms? Listen, we only have 300 people. Imagine 3,120. Do you see, beloved, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus was building his church, he didn't ask anybody's permission. He didn't ask anybody's counsel. He didn't didn't consult us about which would be the easiest way to do it. He had a sovereign purpose. And he was going going to carry it out his way according to the unlimited, infinite recesses of his own holy will. And though it was wonderful, it was also very difficult. And it was about to become even more complicated. Acts chapter 4, all this is happening, Peter gets arrested. Peter and John actually get arrested. It's easy to hide from the hostile authorities when there's only 120 of you and you can fit into a small room. But now there's more than 3,000, and the only way to preach to such a group is to do it outside in public where everyone can hear. And they would often do it mostly in the temple courtyard at Solomon's Porch, They were preaching the very message that the Jewish authorities were afraid of. You remember when they went to Pilate, uh, they said, after Jesus' death, listen, that deceiver said, after three days, he would rise again. So give us a guard, seal the tomb, put the guard in front of it to make sure the disciples don't come and steal the body. I think behind all of that, I I was reading Boyce this week, and Boyce was pointing out there was more to this than these guys trying to protect the body from the disciples. They saw everything Jesus did, and they were afraid he might have been telling the truth. And so they were going to do everything in their power to keep him. I mean, that's the only explanation for how they dealt with the guards later, the, the, silly, thing, the silly excuse they came up with, and paying the guards who should have been killed for fail, falling down on the job. I mean, these guys were afraid that Jesus might do what he said he was going to do. And he did. And he was afraid that his, uh, his people would begin proclaiming that Jesus was the fulfillment of the resurrection so that everyone in church history who looked forward to eternal life, what they called the resurrection that we talked about last week, all of it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he proved when he raised from the dead, they were scared to death that they'd start preaching that and have the resurrection to back it up. And that's exactly what was happening. Their worst nightmare was coming true. And so look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about what? 5,000. The number of what? Men. Uh, this is the way they counted back then. They counted the men. But you know, you, you got to think, okay, a uh, uh, real church situation, we don't have, just have men show up. I mean, just look around, how many children are here? How many wives? So 5,000 men, plus many of them must have had wives and children. What are we talking about? 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people now? And they're all in Jerusalem. And by the way, the, the court of the Gentiles there around the temple proper was big enough to handle those kinds of crowds. And it got really crowded. And for these Jewish leaders, it got really scary. And they were afraid of the people, and so they didn't harm Peter and John. They just warned them. Look at verses 17 and 18, chapter 4. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, Jesus. Verse 18, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Of Jesus this is serious. The appointed authorities have now ordered them to stop preaching. What would you do? What do you do? when you're down witnessing, and you know you have every legal right to tell people about Jesus, and the authorities come and say, "Stop." Hmm, I don't want to be too controversial here, but let me just show you. What Jesus, what uh, Peter said to them, verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, you're the priests, right? For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot, we do not have the capacity to get ourselves to stop telling about everything that we've seen and heard. It's too amazing. It's too glorious. It's too catastrophic and monumental. God is doing something, and if you don't care to recognize it, we can't help you, but we must speak even to our own peril. Think about it, beloved. In a matter of a very few days, this comfortable church of 120 exploded, first into a group of 3,000, then 5,000, and then we find out they're only counting the men. And Now they're crossways with the government authorities. More than that, it was absolutely clear that all of it was happening, not because of some strategizing on the part of the apostles, but according to the sovereign plan and power of the Lord of the church. They weren't creating this, God was. They were just as surprised at, at what God was doing as everybody else. Now I can speak for the elders and say of this church, you see the wonderful things God is doing here? Nobody's more surprised than me. We didn't strategize this. We didn't say, hey, I got an idea. Let's, let's build this church so that we have to have two services. That would be really cool. The Lord has done this. In a much smaller way, the same same place we find ourselves in this church today is kind of comparable to what was happening back then in a a very minuscule way. Because here, things are changing. The church is growing. And some of the results of that are absolutely wonderful. There's new friendships. I've made new friends here in the last six months to a year. And that's wonderful. New friendships are forming. New ministries are launching. Praise God for that. People are stepping up to the plate and giving leadership to do Things that we never did before. Worship is fuller when we're all together. And it's more comfortable when we're meeting in two services. And the impact on the community and the world is even broader. And all of that is wonderful. On the other hand, some of the results of growth are not as welcome. It's more difficult to learn everybody's name. Especially the children. Uh, Sometimes I can't remember the names of my own children. I was disciplining one of them recently, and we were in a hurry. And, and I said, Josh, Andy, Calvin, what is your name? It's like, Wesley? That's right, Wesley. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> and it's hard to discipline when we start laughing at you, you know. <laughs> Just get in the car. The thought of building a new building is daunting. We had a two-hour meeting yesterday morning, pleading with the Lord, give us wisdom ministry needs, and counseling. I mean, sometimes it seems overwhelming. we got more people, and that means, uh, I mean, more people is equals more sinners, equals more problems. And, and God's word speaks to all of those problems. But they're, you know, how do you do that with everybody? It's complicated. It's not as comfortable. And so the question is, How do we respond to change? We're confident that the changes that have taken place here have come by the sovereign rule of the Lord of the church. He's building his church. And part of the result of that is our little church has grown. The only question is, how do we respond to it? More importantly, how does God want us to respond to it? How does he want us to respond to it? Well, I think we're supposed to respond the same way the people in the And the very first church responded. They turned to the word of God. Look at verses 23 through 26. When they had been released, this is still Peter and John, they went to their own, and the the phrase, the word companions is added here. They went to their own people. They went to their friends. They went to the church and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, that is, when the church heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, now watch this, worship O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth. What does that have to do with these guys being persecuted? You have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of of our father David, your servant, you said... Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do, watch this, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God, you did this. You are doing all of this. How can we respond except to go back to your word and say, God, in your word, show us how to interpret what you're doing and help us to respond to it in a way that brings pleasure to you. We exist. We exist to please you. We find our joy in pleasing you. And they simply went back to the word of God and said, This is what the Word of God says about this situation. And it led them to worship. It drove them to worship. Notice with me that as uncomfortable as these circumstances were, they realized God was doing it. And so they worshiped. And more than that, his word revealed that God himself had sovereignly directed every detail of redemptive history. According to the plan that he had revealed to David, he goes all the way back to David. Lord, you said this was going to happen. This is exactly what your word told us would come. And the result of all of this was tremendous. The believers recognized that God was blessing them in extraordinary ways, so they didn't care about any of the discomfort that came along the way. They were just amazed that God allowed them to participate in what he was doing. It was a privilege. And some of it was was incredibly blessed, and some of it was really uncomfortable. But they praised God their focus immediately turned completely Godward, which is what led them into deep sacrificial fellowship and ministry to one another. We pick up in verse 32. And the congregation of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him. You know, one of the, one of the immediate... If, if your life is not Godward, one of the indications that you are not walking in the Spirit is you become very, very selfish about what you perceive belongs to you. But the closer you get to God, the more you realize it all belongs to Him, and the more you just want to give it away. And they claim that nothing, uh, that uh, no one claimed that anything belonged to Him, was His own, but all Things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all of them who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, that's how they took the offering, and they would be distributed to each one as he had need. Some people use this to say, see, even the Bible teaches communism. That's not true. Communism is when the government says, you must do this. What we see here is the Holy Spirit doing this spontaneously in the hearts of people to make sure everyone's needs were met. It's just amazing. There was no selfishness, no complaining, only a deep awareness that God had stepped into their world with extraordinary power to establish and build his church. Now, admittedly, there there was that one case where some people saw this as an opportunity to promote self. But you remember, God dealt with that in a very forthright manner. Chapter 5, which we don't have time to look at, tells the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, whom the Lord struck dead publicly in church for lying and for seeking to use the glory of God as a means of self-advancement. And this was a huge warning. This was a huge warning to the church. Don't interpret all of this growth and all of this joy as a license to do whatever you want for your own pleasure. You're enjoying this? It's wonderful? Don't let your guard down, because this is not about you. This is not about me. This is about the glory of God. And this is a huge lesson. I wish we had time to unpack chapter 5. It's a huge lesson, I think, to pastors who are trying to get the world into the church, trying to get the world into the church. You know what happened? God struck two people dead because of their sin. You know what happened? (laughs) The church didn't want to come in. I mean, the world didn't want to come in. And yet God was adding to their number. Many churches are afraid of what would happen to their attendance if they exercised public church discipline. This was way worse than that. This is way worse than that. But look at what happened. Chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. The God of Abraham... Oh, that's wrong chapter. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however. the people, However, the people held them in high esteem and all the more believers in the lord multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number i mean come on he's already told us about the 5000 that's really maybe 15 to 20000 and now he's saying even after this there were some who said it's too scary we're not going to join that group fine fine the apostles didn't rush out and say no 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 what can we do to get you in coffee bar rock band you know, what can we do? May everybody wear a T-shirt? Um, nope. The Lord's not drawing you to be a part of this? Fine. Fine. We leave that to him. Uh, we're more concerned about the people who are here than the ones who aren't here. We've got to shepherd this group. And you know what? They're coming in. They're coming in. They're coming in. They're coming in. And, and we don't know how we're going to we're gonna be able to minister to the people we have to minister to. And then you remember there was that problem with Uh, The Hellenistic Jewish widows who were not being treated right, they were being discriminated against because of their racial connections, their ethnic connections. You remember how the apostles responded to that? They didn't say, oh my goodness, we've got to change this. We've got to fix church. We've got to reinvent this thing. No, they said, listen, choose from yourselves seven faithful men to handle that. As for us, God has called us to two things, the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And we're not saying the problem is small, but we're saying dealing with that problem is not what God has called us to do. Getting sidetracked on those issues is not what God has called us to do. If we ever get so involved in something else, no matter what it is, and no matter how good it is, that it diminishes the ministry of the Word of God, then we have just stepped outside the will of God. It's amazing when you see How the apostles responded to change, radical, difficult, complicated change, and yet they constantly went back to the Word of God. There's no danger of messing up Christ's plan to build his church when we're operating in obedience to his Word. You just can't mess it up. We don't have to be afraid of too many people leaving the church and we don't have to worry about too many people joining the church. That's not our business. It's God's business. What we have to do and this is complicated enough is figure out how to bring the word of God to bear in the next decision and be faithful. Being faithful in the next decision For the elders, this means making sure every decision we make for the church is consistent with God's word. For everyone else in the church, including ourselves personally, it means living in obedience to his word. In a personal level with one another, exhibiting the fruit of the spirit, which consists, even in the midst of change, no matter how difficult, it consists of love, joy. These are not feelings. This is what we do for one another and with one another when it's really hard to do it, thus demonstrating that it's the Holy Spirit doing it. We love when it's hard to love. We enjoy joy with one another when there should be conflict. We pursue peace. We exercise patience. We resolve to be kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-control. And this is just a a sampling of the fruit of the Spirit. There's more. There's no place for pride. There's no room for being self-willed and arrogant on issues of preference that come up. When the Lord of the church brings unexpected change, like the ones that we're experiencing now, our responsibility is to simply respond with joyful, faithful obedience to his word in all things. Another way of saying it might be this. In the times of change, as comfortable or as difficult as they may be, we must resolve to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. And this is especially true when God brings about unexpected change. When this happens, the Lord uses us then to take his word to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what God did. You remember how the story goes on from here? Next thing that happens, Peter and James are arrested. Um, Peter and John are arrested. They're thrown back into jail. They think, oh, here we go again. I mean, it's been what, 24 hours? We're back in jail. They get in jail and an angel comes and lets them out. And the angel says to him, go back to the court of the Gentiles, go back to the temple, and you start preaching. You start telling everybody about the resurrection and the glory of God again. And, and nobody knew that this had happened. So the next morning when, when the leaders got up, they said, okay, bring the prisoners, and they went. And the guards were still in place, and they looked in the cell, and they're gone, and they get out of here. And where are they? And somebody came in and said, they're at the temple preaching again, and they go and they, they arrest them. And they bring them back, except this time they don't let them off easy. This time they, they beat them. And they warn them again, it's going to go worse for you next time. Stop preaching in that name. And the text says simply this, that they were glad because the Lord had counted them worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name He don't pick up and quit. And then what happens next? Chapter seven. Stephen is martyred, killed. A little change. Atmosphere is becoming a little more hostile. And there's a new figure on the scene. He's really not new. He was probably there in Jesus' trial. A young man, a up, young upstart, who is way into his early career of being a great young leader among the Pharisees by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And he's ravaging homes, throwing men and women into into jail. He was there holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death. And what does God do? God doesn't, he's not intimidated by that. I'll just wait until he's on the road to Damascus. Bam! Now he's mine. And now he's the most powerful of the apostles in his ministry to the Gentiles. You see, Jesus said, I will build my church. And not Saul or the Sanhedrin or dictators or persecution or nakedness or famine or sword. None of that can interfere with my sovereign purpose to build my church. And all along the way, there's going to be changes. You know what happened? After Stephen was killed, the church scattered. And you think, oh my goodness, where's everybody going? They're leaving. Don't leave. Don't leave. We got a good thing going here. We can take over Jerusalem. No, fear gripped them and they spread. They all, they all went back home. You say, well, how do we interpret that? Matthew 11, 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. See, the plan from the very beginning was that they would go to the ends of the earth. They didn't have anybody master plan that out. God just made them really willing to go. It's either that or stay and face this kind of persecution. You see, he always has his will done. I love what Nebuchadnezzar said after he got done eating grass for seven years and was restored to the throne. When he said, no one can hold back the Lord's hand. No one can hold back the Lord's hand. He is God over all heaven and earth. He is sovereign over all things. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You think there was significant change in his life? I think someday we'll see him in heaven. But here's the point, beloved. God's doing some wonderful things here. And we've got to be really, really careful that we don't allow changes to get us off track. The main thing has got to remain the main thing. And walking in the Holy Spirit needs to be the same as always. The fruit of the Spirit needs to be exhibited in us now more than ever. Decisions have to be made, yes. And we need to make them as best we can, understanding the Word of God. But we never, we can never allow ourselves to start ejecting things that God told us to do or exercising pride and self-will and taking advantage of a good situation. Nor, on the other hand, must we allow ourselves to get discouraged because things aren't like they always used to be. Don't you see? The Lord is just doing exactly what he said he would do. I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell, not even the gates of death can prevail against it. God's doing amazing things. The only thing I pray And I hope you're praying as well, is that in the end we will be found faithful. The church's divinely orchestrated circumstances will change. But God's people are always, always, always called to respond in faithfulness to his word. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving this morning. You are Lord of the church. And we are your slaves. And oh, how we love to be in this relationship with you. And Lord, I confess, so often we're unfaithful. And yet you are always faithful because you cannot deny yourself. And you're always forgiving. And you always use your spirit to bring about repentance in our hearts, though we are but proud men and women. And so we thank you for the change you've caused in our own hearts, making us into new creatures in Christ. We praise you for the changes that are taking place in our church. How are we to conclude anything else, Father, except that you're doing this? We haven't planned on it. You're just blessing your word and your people. And so we give you praise for it. We ask you, Father, to continue your blessing of wisdom, the resources we need to do what you want done. Oh, Father, be glorified in us for the sake of Jesus. And for the sake of our own joy, we pray it. Amen. Amen. You'd stand with me now.